Hey everybody, my name is Jesse Collings, and I want to tell you all about my show, The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. On The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, we do a thorough analysis on the biggest issues and trends within the pro wrestling industry. We talk a lot about pro wrestling media, we talk a lot about fan culture and wrestling's place within general pop culture, and we talk about the broader influences that are shaping the way we discuss and analyze the pro wrestling industry. We've had some of the brightest minds in the pro wrestling intelligentsia on the show, including WrestleNomics host Brandon Thurston, both Rich Krejci and Joe Lanza from the Flagship Wrestling Podcast, Trevor Dame from the Through the Years Podcast, and a whole lot more. This isn't a show for hot takes. It's not a show recapping the latest episode of television. This is a show focusing on the biggest topics in pro wrestling and doing a deep dive on the real stories behind the surface level analysis you might find elsewhere. The Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a try. Thanks. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jesse Collings. Joining me here today, first-time guests on the show, uh, someone that I just met uh in per like a few minutes ago when we were chatting on a zoom before i started recording this um but someone i'm really excited to talk to um this is dr eric wesselman dr eric wesselman is a professor of psychology at illinois state university and the reason eric is here today to talk with us is because i really wanted to explore some of the general topics in fandom and kind of the psychology behind fandom and a lot of the, I think, things we talk about in the show in many of our previous episodes are related to some of the you, the quirks of fandom and the attitudes of fandom and social media interactions on fandom. And I really want to talk to someone who has a lot of experience, not only with different elements of fandom, but also different, you know, has an academic background and, and can understand some of the psychological aspects of what we're seeing going on in, in, in our in uh, fandom in 2023. Well, I guess it's 2024 now. That's going to, I'll get it right. That'll take me until August to, to get uh, the right year. <laughs> um, but Eric, thank you so much for, for joining the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. I, I sent Eric a, I, I discovered Eric, um, when I was like researching like potential guests and I sent him a, a long rambling email about uh, what I was looking for. And Eric was very accommodating and being like, yes, let's do it. Let's, 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 let's record something. So I'm really appreciative of that. Um, I guess I'll start with just kind of this general point, which is um, something that obviously anyone familiar with wrestling fans, but really anyone familiar with fandom in general has witnessed over the last several years and it really always existed but definitely with the um prevalence of social media has definitely taken on a new form and that's the tribal aspect of our fandom which is people who enjoy something it could be wwe it could be coke 
could be Marvel comics. It could be whatever their fandom is connected to. And they enjoy it so much that they root for it almost as if it's a sports team. And we see that a lot on social media. And I don't know if like it's always been like this. Like you can go back a hundred years and see that people were like, I don't know, arguing about Rudolph Valentino or something like that. Um, the way that they argue about stuff today. But I'm kind of curious just to start, Eric, like kind of, you know, with your background and your experience, how have you kind of identified, you know, this rooting interest that people have that's now connected to their fandom of of whatever that fandom may be? They're now almost supporting it like it's like a sports team where there's a competition that they need to win as opposed to like an art that they enjoy. So the way I approach fandom uh, and, and others as well uh, is sort of rooted in uh, the concept of identity. So who we think we are, how we define ourselves. And that's, of course, we could spend multiple podcasts just figuring out what is identity. Um, but the long and short of it is that we have individual characteristics, we have interpersonal relationships, and we have broader identity categories. So groups that we affiliate with race, gender, religion, country of origin, um, any number of sort of broader aspects to who, how we define ourselves. And these all make up who we are. Now, we are motivated to have a generally coherent and positive sense of self. And there are a variety of psychological mechanisms by which we sort of on a daily basis try to keep that afloat. Um, and I think that um, a general tension that is sort of shown up throughout the psychology of, of identity and other types of uh, academic disciplines who study that, look at this tension between what aspects make us unique to stand out from other people, and at the same time, as social animals, what aspects make us similar to others. And there's just this general daily tension that we have between those two trying to find a balance point um and, and the way i and others uh, approach fandom is that fan identities help us find that balance between finding other folks who get us who like what we like and also things that make us feel unique from broader popular culture yeah, yeah you know it's interesting i've heard this kind of argument before which is the evolution of the importance of an individual's taste right mm -hmm. as the standard of the average standard of living has risen over the last you know 100 200 years um there's less out there to distinguish oneself from another person in terms of like material goods right mm -hmm. you can still buy a really expensive car or have a really big house or expensive clothing that kind of allows you to stand out from someone else. But especially in terms of like the general middle-class person, there's not that much that we can distinguish from each other in terms of like purchasable goods um, or materialistic items. And, you know, everyone has a, everyone that I know, you know, all of my friends have cars, for instance, all my friends have houses that they live in. Um, some of us don't own our houses, but that's beside the point. Um, right. But but everyone kind of has it's it's not like, you know, 100, 200 years ago where you have this, you know, you're either really rich or you're like really poor the, 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 as mm -hmm. the, you know, um, and 
like as as we kind of lose those kind of social distinctions um that are really clear and obvious individual taste has taken on a bigger part of a person's personality because that can distinguish ourselves from each other um and that's kind of a similar point you're saying is that like this fandom this in in like kind of like the peacocking of this fandom is you know in some ways kind of related to like we can't really brag about our materialistic items anymore what makes makes us different and in some cases what makes us feel superior to other people um if we're all kind of on the same playing field and one of those things would be like well i have this really good taste in these things that i like and you don't and that becomes a bigger part of our identity yeah so the um the idea of uh, of expressing something about oneself right so clothing um I'm thinking about back into uh, high school, you know, junior high, when for most people, that's when they this these concepts of individuality, at least in this country, really start to emerge. Uh, you know, we say, OK, I like this type of music, so I'm going to buy T-shirts if I can that that show that to other people. Or um, you pick jewelry, hairstyles, hair colorings. Any of these different markers are things that are meant to to communicate to others something that you want to show them, right? And uh, uh, we do that interpersonally, face to face contact. We do that online. You know, we curate our social media presence uh, again with information that helps other people kind of get to know us. So we may find other wrestling fans or you know other fans of of punk rock or goth or metal or hip-hop or you know mcu or or whatever it is you know but even within that you know you go to a fan space you go to a concert you go to a con and you have you're all there for the same general reason but you may pick okay i got this og t-shirt right that communicates i liked this band and their first two albums you know and maybe more recent fans aren't going to get it but there's going to be someone else there who sees that reference and is like ah i got you you know so there's a distinguishing there too you know we have been og fans or we like this phase yes, it's a geek they're gatekeeping exactly right or i like this character when they were uh, a heel or a face or you know the, the raw years or the wcw years or, or whatever right there's this this tension between we're all here for the same reasons we like similar things but we also have our uniqueness within that one of the really interesting things um that has really exploded certainly in wrestling fandom and i've, I've noticed in other things too is uh individual fans interests in the economics uh behind uh wrestling and also i mean i say this is someone that co-hosted a podcast called wrestlenomics um <laughs> but there's a ton more interest in things like television ratings and revenues that are being driven in the industry by live attendance um these kind of business metrics that largely the and, and i'm a firm believer that the interest in these metrics is is largely built around people wanting to feel like they're right and so mm. they're looking for information that says like well, this wrestling show that I liked did a great television rating. Therefore, I can affirm that my uh, taste is correct. 
And if this thing that I didn't like or this thing that this person who I don't like likes did a bad television rating, therefore I can say this person is incorrect because the masses don't agree with them, which isn't really like have anything to do with like um, like artful criticism. It's more of just looking for additional information to feel justified in whatever terminal argument there's in. And certainly I've noticed that like in box office totals, there's a bigger interest in movie fans. And, you know, movie fans would like to, to, to if you're a Marvel fan, you might want to make fun of, you know, Black Adam and The Rock for, for not doing well and bombing at the box office. And if you're not a Marvel fan, you might be like, oh, the Marvels did really poor. Like, like, and, and so people kind of use that information, but I feel like that's definitely something that's growing in interest. Um, in fandoms across the board and it's largely being used to score points in online arguments and for other people to make themselves feel like they're uh correct in their taste yeah so um and, and i i noticed you made this this point earlier this idea of feeling superior um and it's certainly not unique to fandom uh nor, nor do i think it's a new phenomenon i think we may just see it in different ways or we may see it more regularly because social media sort of amplifies this division um you know earlier i mentioned that we sort of had this general psychological need to see ourselves positively and there are various ways to do that and in terms of i sort of group identity um to start with you know we we, we have the so who am i and who who is like me and who is not like me, right? And this sort of a in-group, out-group distinction. Now, there's nothing necessarily, I'll say, I'll use the term wrong, uh, wrong with that uh, when it's just descriptive, um, you know, just recognizing difference among folks. Um, for better or for worse, though, the shift between in-group love you know, liking people who are similar to you, who get what you get, you know, you, you, your found family, your tribe, whatever phrase you want to use, uh, your team, liking who is like you and disliking who is not like you, we step over that line relatively easily. Um, and some of it has to do with this issue of comparison that for whatever reason, part of feeling good about ourselves means we have to have something to compare that to on an evaluative dimension. Right. And so again, when I grew up, I was really into music. I still am. I have over 1500 CDs and I don't even know how many digital albums, but um, you know, being in a lot of different subcultural music spaces, there is sort of a pecking order. And in the context of bands, you know, one of the big divisions is, well, have you always been a fan of them or for a while, or were you only a fan when they were popular, right? And in sports teams, you see this when you talk to people talk about fair, fair weather fans, mm -hmm. right? So I'm from Illinois and there's this, you know, the Cubs have probably had many losing seasons compared to winning seasons. And you have these folks who are like, oh, were you, were you a Cubs fan the entire time and the worst of times or only when it, you know, makes you look good. And, and that becomes sort of this dynamic tension between fans. And I think at the, the core of it is, for those folks who are OG fans, you know, who maybe were fans of something when it wasn't popular, maybe they took some crap for that, right? Um, and that that hurts us. That's a type of exclusion. I've done research on that. 
um, when someone makes fun of what we like, it, we take it as a personal slight. And so if we're, you know, liking something when it's not popular and then suddenly it becomes popular, now we're like, well, WTF, you know, I, wh why did I suffer through this? And now suddenly you're all on board. Um, so I, I think that's part of this larger tension between um, hating on someone else's passion and taking pleasure perhaps in a, in this case, a lack of box office, like you mentioned. Yeah. And it's kind of like, um, it's kind of interesting because I feel like there's like two types of um, fandom in the sense of like, you have, there's this interest in being, there's almost like a, as like counterculture has, has really existed and largely taken over in some ways become like our main form of pop culture in a lot of ways in this country. Like there's almost like this intense badge of honor in being like an OG fan or mm. like part of being, becoming a fan of something is that so you could one day get upset about all these new bandwagon fans that have hopped on board. <laughs> like that's literally something that people I think like, whether they are intentionally doing or are unintentionally doing it, they're looking forward to the one day where they can eventually complain about um, and get to gatekeep a little bit. Um, that's almost seen as like a rite of passage in fandom. And yet at the same time, there's also like the psychology of like people wanting to like the popular thing, wanting to feel accepted. And we kind of feel like people are coming from it in two different angles almost. Like you have the people who are really want to get that kind of almost dopamine rush of being able to gatekeep a little bit. But you also have the people that are just looking to like this popular thing and justification for liking this popular thing. Yeah. Well, and, and so you mentioned earlier, like this issue of, of box office and looking to what's popular. And again, being, you know, uh, social beings, we take that as some type of information, um, not just early on in a fandom, but throughout Right. We um, we look to others who we view as peers uh, to, to kind of get some information on should I pay attention to something? I mean, you know, certainly with the Internet, um, with the accessibility of more options, um, we only have so much time and energy. Right. And so I, I like to joke with my students. Uh, when I talk about, for example, music, right? So Amazon came out really when I was in my early 20s. Um, before that, if you liked, you know, something that was more niche, like, you know, punk or metal or goth or whatever, um, you had to have be able to have access to that. So unless you lived in like a college town, right, where there were maybe some UCD stores where you could find these things, if you were lucky, the local major music stores at your mall had maybe had a few of these things. But again, they would only order that if they thought it was particularly popular. More often, what you had to do was either buy a sampler or happen upon a CD that had a, um, you know, a small catalog in that CD or maybe send a self-addressed stamped envelope to some location that they would then mail you back Um a hard, you know, catalog, you then sent your check in the mail or well-concealed cash to get what you needed. Um, maybe if you were really lucky, you lived in an area where there were cons 
right nearby where you could go and meet people uh, who had similar interests. You could buy the merch that you needed. I mean, you know, early 90s when anime started to break, uh, where you started getting anime showing really late at night on the sci-fi channel and then maybe on Saturday mornings, and then finally Cartoon Network came in, right? Now you have more accessibility, but before that, you had to find these bootleg tapes. You had to find a friend who happened to be willing to record for you something to be exposed to that. Uh, so it, the benefit of having this type of um, e-based world where we can get whatever we want, whenever we want, um, opens up a lot of avenues. But then you've got to decide, okay, well, well, what's good, quote unquote good, right? Well, especially if you're new in a genre, you're going to say, well, what are people most talking about? Uh, that's one cue. Then as you get into a genre uh, of music or of entertainment or whatever, then you're going to start to hear conversations where people have who've been there for a while, who maybe have a more critical view on something, a more nuanced view are going to say, okay, well, yes, there are all of these bands who share this particular label, but some of them have a more complex music structure. Or, yes, you have all these different wrestling industries, but some of them uh, have more complicated storylines, or others of them are more interested in crowd interaction, right, in a live show, and, and how they uh, please fans in that regard. And maybe others are more interested in how many views they get, so they're going to be doing pretty similar things. They're not going to experiment as much, right? You look at pop music, for example, right? I mean, it's like a lot of auto-tuning. Um, there are a lot of paint-by-numbers type song compositions. Things start to sound the same. Um, you, then you have particular artists that maybe want to experiment a little bit more. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, you know, when they talk about crossover artists or... Um, I'm really going back in time here now, but like in the mid nineties, the, the country star Garth Brooks wanted to do more of a, a rock album. And, and so he created a different persona. Um, the name's currently escaping me, but it was, everybody kind of knew it was Garth Brooks, but they wanted a different label so that old school fans of Garth Brooks who were, would maybe buy it and expect a traditional country album weren't upset by what they got. I mean, this is why a lot of other bands will do side projects, right? They want to get experimental, but they don't want to buck the trend too much to avoid. They don't want to be Dylan goes electric. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't be worried about the dated references on the show. Um, All right. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, well, what's interesting. I still about... remember WrestleMania eight. Yes. And uh, was that when, um, I Hulk Hogan, I can't remember who Hulk Hogan was fighting, but I feel like the Ultimate Warrior did a run in. And then that, that's my last major memory. <laughs> okay. Yes. Of course, you're referring to WrestleMania 8 from uh, the Indiana Hoosier Dome against. Uh, uh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Where he, of course, wrestled Sid Vicious. Um, <laughs> that's what it was. Okay. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> the, um, yeah. Well, one of the things that's really fascinating that you kind of got into is, especially as we, you know, you, you talked about music and how like relatively inaccessible it was. Uh, up until very recently, and I think anime is also a good point um, because you can make the exact same, basically the exact same thing happened with um, 
Japanese pro wrestling, which was mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, a very, very niche group of fans would, we call in the wrestling industry, we refer to them as tape traders, would, you'd get a tape from Japan, usually starting by somebody going to Japan on a trip and buying tapes. And you would pass them around, you would you'd share them, you would make copies of them, you would be like literally, you know, communicating via letter with people in, that you were talking to via wrestling magazines. Um, and you would be mailing each other, you know, what tapes you had, just probably exactly similar to what you're describing when anime first became big in the early mm -hmm. 90s. And now, of course, just like anime, where you can basically watch anything that exists, you know, just with a few mouse clicks, no matter, you know, how obscure it may be the same is true for wrestling from other countries every basically every japanese wrestling promotion you can find really easily um through a few clicks of the mouse online and that has made it way more accessible for people and it has in some ways made it less of a niche um and has i think in a lot of ways greatly complicated wrestling fandom just in general, because one of the major shifts that we've noticed in the last 10 years is if you were, or if you fancied yourself a big wrestling fan, you pretty much only had to know about WWE. No other wrestling promotion was significant enough really to, to matter that much. So we had a lot of people that started podcasts, a lot of people that started websites and blogs and YouTube channels, and all they ever knew was WWE. And that was okay, because that's all anyone ever wanted to talk about. But as alternative wrestling companies have become easier to access online, just like music and anime and anything else, uh, WWE's ubiquity in terms of being the thing that everyone talked about has lapsed to a degree. And what's happened is a lot of these people that fancy themselves experts have been exposed by really only understanding one brief slice of the overall wrestling industry. And that's the corner that WWE occupies. Everything else, they have a hard time digesting. They have a hard time understanding how those wrestling companies tell their stories. They have a hard mm. time uh, understanding how those wrestling companies present their product, how they present their characters. And it has led to a lot of the debate and clashes, which is largely these people that I think ended up with a with a with a form of like almost like arrogance and being like, well, I'm the wrestling guy. But realistically, mm -hmm. they were only knowledgeable about a very, very brief portion of it, which was okay up until a few years ago where other stuff became much more popular. And I think that has led to a lot of the kind of attitude clashes you might see online which is people who are unable or disinterested in recognizing other aspects of the industry that haven't been key to wwe so i'm hearing a couple of different things there and i'll you know i can't speak to these specific people you're talking about yeah. but just the sort of um things that i'm resonating with right you know that the the phrase used i'm the wrestling guy Right. Or mm -hmm. that, that that that's an identity statement right? exactly. as opposed to maybe someone saying, well, I'm the WWE wrestling person or I'm the like. So I, I think whenever people start debating what's, quote unquote, right or wrong, particularly in these domains of, of aesthetics, really, um, it's probably good to 
to try and always keep in mind that when we, because I'm sure I use those statements myself, <laughs> I try not to, but you know, there, there are certainly times um, that there's some amount of uh, what my my good friend and uh, psychology fan nerd Scott Jordan would say um, is identity work. Um, that it's again going back to sort of what I started with this idea that we have these tensions um, and uh, to stand out, but also to fit in and at the sort of end of the day, we want to see ourselves positively, however we define that, right? And so if we are approaching this by saying, I'm an expert, and I'm an expert in this huge domain versus this niche, right? Um, I, yeah. I may these are people who how I make my comparisons. These are people who who have careers, like as like pundits, so they run websites, Um I had a, a former, uh, I used to write for a website called wrestlinginc.com. Um, our, our boss, Raj Giri, who was very successful in running this wrestling website, um, but really only ever understood WWE and still to this day really only understands WWE. And that was fine for the first 20 years he ran the website. Um, and then all of a sudden it wasn't fine because other wrestling promotions, other wrestling ideas became prominent enough. And he's kind of been constantly fighting this war where he fancies himself this expert and it's been his career for the last 20, 25 years, but he really only knows a very small percentage of the wrestling business. And I think struggling to, uh, instead of being like, okay, I've got to learn more. It's been like, it's been more of an attitude of like, I'm going to double down and be like, I don't need to learn this stuff because I have this identity that, and, and if I were to concede that I don't know as much as I think I do, then that would like shatter my own self-identity. Yeah. So, so again, not, not being able to speak specifically to uh, your former boss, but just sort of thinking about from my, uh, my own experience, right. I've been publishing in psychology. Most of my work is on the dynamics of, of social inclusion and exclusion. Right. And I've, well-cited across the world, but there's also a, a lot of research out there that I just have trouble keeping up with. And so I continually have to sort of stop and ask myself, okay, do I need to know more about this? Am I okay with maybe saying, all right, I'll make room for some other folks. Uh, and in what domains, right? And, and that's we talk about identity sometimes, just like as as lay people, uh, we talk about identity as who I am, and we think that's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But identity is dynamic. Um, not only does it change throughout our lives, but it can change in the context that we're at, right? And so maybe when you are at a, a house show for wrestling, uh, certain brand labels are important to you. Right. But let's say you are outside of that house show and you're in a different environment and you meet someone who you like WWE, they like a, a Japanese circuit uh, or some other brand. But, hey, we're the only three wrestling fans in here and everybody else likes something we don't. Now, suddenly in that moment, you're much more similar than you are different mm -hmm. and your identity values in that moment will will have a different dynamic than if you were in a context where we're all wrestling fans, but, but I like my guy and you like yours. And now we're butting heads. 
Yeah, and that's, I think, like a consequence of whether it's being on social media or being on a Discord channel or things where you're taking the set. This, the setting really matters whether or not we're in this, you know, digital room with all these, like, with thousands and thousands of wrestling fans or in an actual setting where, realistically, there's only a few of us that will even have any idea what we're talking about because we're <laughs> we're in this niche fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really strong point. I, I wanted to ask you about, like the kind of developing parasocial relationships that people end up having. Um, I think I've seen a lot and read a lot about, you know, loneliness and people's feelings like they attach more emotional weight to individual performers or characters or, or, you know, TV shows or whatever. It could be, it could be an individual person or could be uh, a form of media, but like, do you think that that is something like, like basically the standard thought I've heard is that, well, people are less social than they used to be in person and people work from home. People don't have as many friends as they used to. People don't, kids don't hang out at the playground anymore, whatever, you know, old fashioned terminology you want to use to describe what's different about people today than people decades ago. Um, that people end up forming these like stronger parasocial bonds with their fandom that didn't maybe exist pre-internet and didn't exist when our social system was a little bit different. Um, Do you buy that in the sense of like, there has been the way our social system has evolved over the last several decades has created this dynamic where people are much more likely to fall into uh, intense emotional attachment to people or things they've never met or directly interacted with. So in the absence of, of data, (laughs) um, I sort of go back and forth because there there probably is something to changes over time. Um, I don't know about, bear with me here as I think on the spot. Um, I, I don't know how much of it is an increase in quantity and maybe just different opportunities, right? And so... I think having quote unquote parasocial relationships is is not new, Um, you know, as far back as, as people have created stories, we've connected to characters. That's part of why stories exist. Uh, Stories exist to both entertain and teach and good stories are things that, that bring us into the narrative. And a lot of ways of doing that is to give us characters who either, share some aspect of ourselves in terms of identity or maybe have similar experiences things that we can resonate with to be like okay i don't know what it's like to fight voldemort or i don't know what it's like to march on the black gates of mordor or whatever um but i know what it's like to have challenges in my life and so i can see resonance similarities in these characters and and that's again something that seems to be um not bounded in time but the things that connect us to stories to characters to products there's something that makes us feel like we are connected both in, and so there's the belonging element and there's also that sort of identity uh dynamic that's going on there um th- certainly there are people who have talked about anecdotally how maybe they 
didn't have solid home relationships or maybe they didn't have a lot of friends growing up for whatever reason and so they found those friends in books in comics in the movies that they watch these are the narratives that uh we return to and a lot of people will talk for example about re-watching a movie or rereading a book you know revisiting old friends um and we respond to stories based on what we like or don't like um and when things happen to those characters as is going to happen for example in a person who's got let's say a wrestling character who's got a 30-year career right and things got to change up musicians they can't always play the same style for their entire career um comic book characters right characters that have existed since the 1930s or 40s change as new creative teams come in they try some things that work with fans they try some things that don't um you know research on fanfic for example very much approaches this idea from do we like the stories that new creators tell right and if a character suddenly changes in a way that we don't like maybe that no longer becomes headcanon maybe we tell our own stories right when a series ends when harry potter ended people were really really upset stephen king wanted rowling to write more books and was willing to pay uh, her to do that right because we want these relationships or parasocial relationships to continue because they're in some ways they're part of how we see ourselves yeah and i think that's a really interesting thing in terms of like like your relationship like how similar and, and, and especially in wrestling um because the characters that are portrayed kind of walk this fine line between real and fake they're not totally like scripted characters like you would see on a, a tv drama necessarily but they're also not totally real and i think in that realm it, it panders to people more people are more likely to identify with those characters because there's an element of reality to them that doesn't necessarily exist in more traditional scripted entertainment but at the same time they're also in this manufactured dramatic setting uh to tell a story um right there's sort of an in almost an improv going on because you know certain wrestlers for example maybe they go by their their actual name or a, a more traditional name like john cena right yeah um, i i don't know if john cena's that person's original birth name but it, it sort of fits a uh, no it is it is yeah okay well so there you go then right whereas you for example you've got uh the godfather right who was also papa shango at some point in time if i remember correctly yes. um Correct. you have um uh the undertaker who for a while was the traditional dead man undertaker and then became more of a demonic character and then became the american badass the bike riding right and and so these are different iterations and some of those characters are more quote-unquote characters we recognize as a role but in other contexts if they're less of a performance and more of a sort of real person still curated right but um we might feel more connected to them in that regard um yeah i just it it, it would be really interesting um to see how 
celebrities navigate that space. I, I, I use a, an older documentary now it was probably 2000, 2001. Uh, but it was one that, uh, the, the cult film actor, Bruce Campbell from the evil dead, uh, army of darkness series made. Um, and, and, in that particular documentary, which was called Fanalysis, so it was dissecting fan spaces, one of the featured guests was um, Ted Raimi, right, who was a longtime stable in uh, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell's films. Um, Ted Raimi talked about how when you go out and you interact in a fan space, it's a really interesting line that you have to walk because you meet these folks they're paying you because they want that experience of meeting this celebrity and you want to give them a little bit more than just here i signed your stuff get out of my face right because we connect with these people parasocially we want a good experience and i can just personally i can think about the people i've met the stars who have been very very accessible in some ways they're not showing me everything about themselves right? But they're, they're nice. They're giving me a little something. And then I can think of the people I met who I really had a sour taste in my mouth. And you know what? I probably met them on a really bad day. Who knows? Maybe they had a death in the family or something else, right? But but all I remember is that moment. And it was either very positive or very negative. That said, even when I've met people, fan or um, celebrities who've kind of let me in a little bit, they're still not my friends, right? There's still that divide. And that was what Ten Raby was continually coming back on is you give them a little, but you got to have some boundary. Uh, and so just that's, it's a, a very tricky tension. Um, and I, I can only imagine how difficult it is for many of these celebrities to, to walk. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, 
and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. If I could have a moment of your time, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Eufy Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all three-in-one offering you triple security so you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door but it's not just for security the eufy video lock is also for convenience no more concerns about losing keys and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras some other great features we love about the eufy video lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a phillips screwdriver no drilling required Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking. Again, 0.3 seconds, it's going to recognize your fingerprints and in one second it's going to unlock. And with the AI self-learning chip embedded, the more you use it, the more accurate it will be. Also, no battery anxiety. You have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2K clear sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They are on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy video lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition. One second. Door is unlocked. Much, much easier. So if you want to jump on board with Eufy Video Lock, search Eufy Video Lock. That is E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Again, that's Eufy Video Lock. E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, the original motivation for me to seek someone like you out 
and, and do an episode like this was it took place a couple of weeks ago. I witnessed an incident. Um, I, uh, I know somebody who uh, they, they liked a tweet that was um, critical of this other semi-prominent social media personality. I think they have like, you know, maybe 10,000 followers on Twitter or something like that. Um, but it's through pro wrestling and pro wrestling, you know, uh, influencer, whatever term you want to use to describe that. And uh, so this person I knew liked a tweet that was critical of this semi-prominent person. And then that semi-prominent person went on to like tweet like 30 times or whatever. And maybe it wasn't as 30 times, but it was an insane amount of, of, of tweets about how mad they were that this person liked a tweet that was critical of them. And I saw that and I was like, I'm like, all right, this is kind of like your typical, like kind of unhealthy social media relationship. This person is taking something very personally and making a big <laughs> deal about it, probably for attention for themselves. And that wasn't really something that was notable to me. But what really was notable to me was that this person had their followers and other people like also getting upset about this person liking this tweet. So it goes beyond just this person feeling personally affronted by this person that liked a tweet that was critical of them. We're now like through another connection uh, of relationship, which is now, I guess, friends and fans of this semi-prominent person are now joining on board and talking about how upset they are that this person liked a tweet. So it's like, it's not just an unhealthy social media relationship. It's like an unhealthy social media relationship by proxy, where because people are fans of this person who has kind of what I would describe as an unhealthy media, social media relationship, they in turn develop unhealthy social media relationships. And the whole thing was so weird and bizarre to me that we're now, it's it's one thing, like I, like, I think I sent this in the email to you. Like I use Taylor Swift as an example, like, Taylor Swift has millions and millions of, of big fans around the world. And because of that, she has all of these other people that are running, you know, Taylor Swift fan pages. Um, I don't even know if fan pages really exist anymore like they used to. Like, But like, the, you know, they've Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, YouTube channels, you know, TikToks, whatever social media platform mm -hmm. they have. Um, and because they're you know these 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 fan pages for a very famous person those fan pages end up getting their own fans with the shared connection being like i like taylor swift so i follow this taylor swift twitter account that like posts pictures mm -hmm. of her or whatever but that person ends up gaining this kind of influence over people not because just because they're you know running this fan accounts and they're kind of using taylor swift's popularity to gain uh popularity uh on their own and the dangerous aspects of that are um, Taylor Swift is a, has a very curated self-image um, and there's factors in play that would prevent Taylor Swift from promoting misinformation online, for saying mean and vile things. And just there's, there's a professionalism that comes with that. That professionalism does not extend to any of these people that are running these fan blocks because they're just random people online who have no direct connection with Taylor Swift at all. And... I, I, I like the point that you make about, about things being curated, right? And mm -hmm. so this is, uh, and I don't think this is unique to, to this particular context. I, I've had these discussions a lot in the with folks I know in the cosplay community, 
And, uh, you know, the folks who are quote unquote cause famous versus the ones who are not, who maybe aspire to be, um, much of this stuff, well, probably all of it to some degree is, is curated, right? Um, the, certainly at the, the high end of things where someone is, has enough cred, has enough resources, et cetera, to have a team to dedicate to sculpting their image, right? And then for people who are not at that level, it may be easier to, to sort of not recognize that that's what's going on, right? And so, you know, all I, you know, if all you see is the hits, you're not seeing the misses. And it's easier to assume that that person has no bad days if you're not getting that information. Um, I, so when we're thinking about this idea of fan, the fan phenomena, however we might define that, you know, there, there are two, two things going on here, two major dimensions. There's the connection to the fan object, right? The celebrity, the, the product or whatever, uh, the parasocial relationship, as, as you mentioned earlier. And then there's the interpersonal aspect. There's the fandom, the connection to other people who satisfy your need for belonging because you like similar things, right? And those sometimes fit together. Sometimes they're at odds, right? And so I, I like to think of these different phenomena that you're describing within those contexts, Right. So thinking about growing up, right, you've got friends. And if someone insults your friend, you're pissed off by proxy, right? Because that friendship is part of your identity. So someone saying something negative about your best friend kind of insults you. And we, we can think of this as sort of a, a spreading activation, right? So let's say I really like this wrestler or this pop star, or this actor, and someone else insults that person. Maybe to some degree, I feel like it rubs off on me, whether or not it quote unquote should is another story, right? But but it but it, it is. And so that may be one way of understanding the sort of spreading toxicity that you're kind of describing. Yeah, I wanted to uh, to ask about this because I, I truly believe I've been saying this for a few years and I've as I've further thought about it, I see no real reason to think that my hypothesis is incorrect, but... I truly believe in wrestling. The divide um, in fans stems from people who are incurious versus people that are curious in the sense of, and, and this is true in wrestling, and I think it's true in, in music and movies and everything else, which is, I'll use movies as an example, just because I think it's easier for everyone to understand. If... I go up to somebody and I say, I just saw this foreign Italian film. It's amazing. You should check it out. Or I think this foreign Italian film is the best movie I've seen this year. It's better than, than Barbie or Oppenheimer or whatever someone's favorite movie was from this past year. Some people are going to react by saying, oh, wow, this person really likes this movie that I've never heard about. And it's a little bit different because it's a foreign film in Italian. I'm going to try it and see that because I'm interested in why that people think this movie is so good. And there's other people that are going to be like, oh, this movie that I've never heard of, there's no way it could be better than these other major movies. I'm not going to listen to that. This person's just a contrarian or this person's just trying to be a hipster or whatever. 
And I think in wrestling, that's like 100% the divide that people have. It's people who are hear about something that they've never heard of before, and they're interested in learning more. And there's people who hear about something they've never heard of before, and they see that almost as, like a, as, a, as a threat to their own um, interests. And I'm kind of curious to know, like, is there like a psychological uh, background to that theory in terms of people who there just seems to be two different types of people, people who are curious enough to, to be interested in something they never heard of before versus people who feel safety in, 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 in what they already know and are not interested in, in finding out things that they don't. So I think it um, may depend on what are the core reasons, because uh, there's probably multiple, why someone is a fan of something, right? And so uh, you can look at this in, you know, a lot of different fan literatures, hor uh, horror movies, quote unquote, bad movies, any number of things. There are a diversity of reasons why we might connect with something. And it's, you know, they all may be there to some degree. We can might think about this as like a, uh, like an audio mixer, right? And so let's say one channel is the interpersonal connection with other people. Another is something unique to that artistic experience right so i i really love innovation in music novel sounds or i really love you know the wrestlers who perform a character differently or maybe i love the physicality right the ones who are willing to take chances with extreme um stunts or the ones who are willing to uh to take more you know like the hardcore wrestling right the ones who are willing to to be hit with barbed wire mm -hmm. um, or, or any other number of things <clears throat> like a fan may endorse one, two or 20 of those channels to different degrees. Right. So we'll start there. And then extending that beyond the question may become, let's say I'm a person who really just wants to know everything I can know about anime right mm -hmm. all the cultural nuances that i'm just you know not getting as someone who's maybe not from japan uh or or whatever and so i'm gonna go out and uh and this is actually this is sort of me me now um when i go to a the library to get a book or two on a topic i come back with 15 books because i just want to know um every little detail I can about something that interests me. Now that's an individual difference, right? Um, that said, I'm also going to take into consideration social aspects. So I'm going to weight people's views differently, right? And so, yeah, there may be people who are just not intellectually curious about something new. They want something safe. There may be other people who are like, yeah, I'm going to dial up that audio channel a little bit more. However, I'm going to take, you know, Jesse's suggestions more on board than I'm going to take Eric's, right? For whatever reason, because you share more experience, you know, maybe I value that person's perspective, that influence, I value influencer A's view more than the influencer B, uh, or some combination there. Um, how, to, how to tease that apart? Well, that's probably a series of studies in and of itself, <laughs> but I think you're definitely, you're onto something there. 
Yeah, it's it's to me it's it just seems like like in wrestling the big divide is pretty much WWE is pretty much I mean if if you're an older fan it, it might not you might still remember WCW or the territories that existed you know before I, I think I have some trading cards from WCW <laughs> yeah like 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 you might remember that but for the most part and, and at this point WCW and WWE are kind of like the same in terms of the product that they presented in most fans mind even though there were significant differences but mm. uh certainly people for my age I'm I'm 29 um like WWE is the introduction to pro wrestling for everyone for the most part. Mm. 99% of people in this country that got into wrestling, they started watching started watching WWE because it was the most accessible. It was on cable. Um, it was the most popular. So you would see it online. However you found it, that's 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 pretty much how you found pro wrestling was int being introduced to WWE. Mm -hmm. And at some point, people came up to you or you read online or your friend told you about something and they said, Here's this other wrestling promotion that you need to know about. Um, I discovered another wrestling promotion because when I was 10, my uh, we were uh, at Toys R Us getting a present for uh, my friend's birthday party. And they had two, we, my friend was a big wrestling fan and we were going to get him like a little like a, you know, wrestling ring for action figures. And there were two rings available. One was the WWE ring and one was for another wrestling promotion called TNA. And TNA had a, had a, uh, uh, theirs was like $5 cheaper. And my mom was like, oh, why don't we just get him this ring? It's like the exact same. It just doesn't have the WWE logo. And I said, sure. And then, so I gave it to my friend and my friend was like, oh, I watched some of that wrestling and it was really good. You should watch it too. And I said, cool, more wrestling. Mm -hmm. Um, but for some people, like the reason that they're into pro wrestling is because they love WWE because that was their introduction to them. And mm -hmm. there's not a motivation to be like, well, I'm not going to watch other non-WWE wrestling because that's not what I fell in love with. That's not what I like. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably true. And, and wrestling's maybe a little bit different than like music or movies because I think people's tastes evolve and are easily more dispersed um, than in, in those mediums than like something more, uh, uh, what's the right word? Like less um, diverse. I guess is the term like it would be kind of really strange if someone only ever listened to one type of music or only ever watched one type of movie. Like I I've never met anyone who's like that necessarily mm -hmm. um, as opposed to maybe only watching one type of pro wrestling. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the distinction is I think like when you talk about like why people like something, I think a lot of it is nostalgia. And a lot of people are like this is I like WWE wrestling. I don't like whatever something else is because it's different i'm going to notice the differences too much and it's i don't have this 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 long-term attachment to it mm -hmm. um and that's that's maybe I, i'm sure you see it like in comic books that maybe some people aren't interested in reading uh whether they're new characters or new magazines or new publishing companies or independent comics or things like that because well i'm only interested in kind of reading the superheroes that I grew up with or this, the, the Marvel and DC, which I know from where I first got into it. I'm sure it's very similar. Yeah. I mean, nostalgia uh, <clears throat> is something that as a phenomenon is identity driven. Uh, it is involving a, a positive view of one's history, which of course is social uh, as well. So um, when you look at a lot of the research on, on nostalgia for products and things, 
uh, it has to do with like who you consumed it with, you know, so in the context of movies, right. Or um, wrestling, pay-per-views, et cetera, maybe you watched it by yourself. Um, but if you did, you probably also talked about it with your peers who also liked that afterwards. Um, music is a little more solitary. You certainly can, you know, invite someone over to listen to some music or put it on in the car. But um, I feel like things like movies, uh, more visual, there is a a more intertwined interpersonal social dynamic to it. Um, I was was in preparation for this interview. I was, you know, kind of digging through some of the literature on uh, on wrestling fans uh, and how for some folks uh, it very much was, you know, their channel was focused on the art or the history of a character or an industry. Um, for others, it very much was tied into the people they were enjoying it with. Right. And so for folks who it is much more of a traditional social interaction, it's you want to share with with what you got. Right. Or uh, coming to your, your point about comics, um, you know, sometimes it also may be time and, and resources. Um what you have access to. So if I've only got so much time or money to support one title, maybe two titles, um, I'm not going to branch out because especially when you're younger, if you've got your allowance money, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of research right now on, on Superman, for example, from the, uh, the nineties. And there's a period of time where there were four or five Superman books uh, and there were a lot of fans writing into the letter column who were like, I can't afford this many books, right? I've only got so much from my paper route. So I just, I can only buy two books. So stop making all these books that I have to keep up with. Um, I could see something very similar to um, wrestling, right? Even if you're following one um, company, right? If they've got two or three shows a week, right? Raw versus SmackDown, Oh, and then I've got to watch these next five different pay-per-views, one a month, maybe two a month. Do I got to get the money to buy that? Do I got to go out to, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings or wherever happens to be showing it um, to keep up with the storyline? That's a lot of investment if you yeah. don't have it. It's a, it's a major issue. I think there's, a, you know, All Elite Wrestling, which, you know, recently popped up as kind of WWE's biggest competitor over since, you know, WCW closed 20 some years ago. And they started out where they only had one show weekly show on Wednesday nights. And that was easy for people to follow. And as the company has become more successful, the TV networks have been like, Oh yeah, we'll give you more programming. And no one's going to turn that down because it's way more money. But now they have a one-hour show on Friday nights and an additional two-hour show on Saturday nights. So they went from two hours per week of television to five hours per week per television. And some people are like, it's too much. I can't follow it. Um, and it, they, they lose all interest in it as opposed to, you know, cutting something out here or there. Or, I just won't watch the new shows. But it becomes overwhelming. Like you said, you talked about the Superman books in the 90s. Like, I, I can't follow this. It's too much. And certainly, you know, for me, my wrestling fandom, even though I pursue a lot of different promotions, I would always love to watch more, but I can't. I just literally don't have that much time. Right. As, as you get older and life becomes more complicated, you get less and less time for these things. Well, I always joke there's a um, a uh, I always like to say like, oh, I'm, this this is the year I'm going to watch more of this promotion. Usually it's like a Japanese promotion. 
Mm-hmm. And what happens is uh, in, in, in Japanese pro wrestling, New Year's Day is like a huge day. All these promotions promote, produce major shows right on New Year's Day, January 1st. And so I always say like, all right, this year I'm going to follow more of this. And then like I'm already just instantly behind, completely unable to, to catch up right on January 1st, even before January 1st, because technically these are taking place, you know, since they're in Japan, they're taking place on December 31st, my time. So mm-hmm. before like the year even starts, I'm already behind. And I was like, all right, I guess I can't watch because I've already, I'm already defeated because I can't watch seven wrestling shows on January 1st. So I'm never going to be able to catch up. And then I never end up watching the rest of the, 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 the shows for the rest of the year, because I just feel like I've already missed out. And I think across all of fandom, as more and more content keeps getting produced, you're seeing that. Like, I think you're definitely seeing that with like the Marvels, you know, Marvel has multiple movies a year, but now they have the Disney plus shows and there's this huge, you know, yeah, you don't technically have to watch all of them to know what's going on, but there's this, there's this, you know, greater saturization of our media, especially the most popular stuff just gets produced, you know, to infinity as much as people as much as people are willing to pay and it may it does make following it much more difficult oh yeah i'm, I'm so totally behind on marvel um you you use the uh, um the term you know I'm, I'm i've already missed out um and i i really like that that you use that term because fear of missing out is a big thing now so for me like in, in my stage in life right now where you know middle-aged my my kids are getting older and i just have less time um i've sort of you know i've got just the ever-growing queue of of movies and tv shows to watch and in in my mind i'm kind of just like all right i'll get to it someday however i also have lots of friends who are not in that same situation and if i want to try and keep up with the conversation Right. So many of my my psych friends who are in this nerd space are all up on Marvel and they're doing podcasts, uh, you know, to get the likes. So they need to be contemporary. They need to have that show out two minutes after (laughs) that season drops. So uh, to be relevant to the conversation. um, Yeah, there, there is that issue that by missing out, it really is problematic for what you want. Right. And you've got this podcast you're a journalist who works on wrestling, right? And so being behind means something different to you than it would be to me if I were in that same space because I'm doing things differently, right? And so that, that we're, we're not all experiencing the fear of missing out in the same way. The last topic I want to touch on is, and again, this this is really big, I think, in wrestling fandom, but you mentioned doing a lot of work on like... um exclusion and doing some studies looking at like hobbies and interests that have a social stigma um i think off air you mentioned like uh talking to like the brony community like the 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 men the adults who like my little pony and um these kind of fandoms that are less socially acceptable um for a lot of people do you feel like there's like really significant differences between fans in those fields as opposed to fans of maybe more traditional uh acceptable entertainment that exists that really shouldn't exist but because of the stigma that's associated with them it leads to kind of maybe different things you notice and different behaviors yeah so um there are going to be nuances across fan categories um 
And most of my work has sort of just kind of been agnostic uh, to the types and just sort of looking at, do people respond positively to what we dig or negatively? And, and my work found that generally speaking, we of course feel a sense of belonging inclusion with other people who like what we like. Um, but we all, when we get to know people, there, there's diversity in, in things. We don't always have to enjoy the same things, right? So I love horror films. My wife can't stand them. Uh, I love Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and my wife can't stand them. Um, but she respects the fact that I like these things. Right. If, if if she didn't, we probably wouldn't have had a long longevity of the relationship that we had. And the same is true with my my friends. Right. Um, we don't all like the same things, but but we can respect the fact that that someone likes it. Right. So I call myself a fan of fandom. Generally speaking, I try not to to judge other people. I try not to yuck their yum. Right. As long as even if I don't understand it. Right. Um, personally. If they enjoy it, it doesn't hurt someone else. It gives them joy. If I respect them, I want to respect their tastes, right? If I don't, or if they don't respect mine, I'm going to feel less connected to them. I'm going to feel to some degree more excluded. Um, and, you know, growing up uh, pre-internet and all these things and liking things that were less popular, I loved comics when it there was no MCU. Uh, it wasn't a comics were still considered to be not just for kids, but for nerdy kids. Right. Many of my peers were trading baseball cards, but they didn't understand why I was trading Marvel or DC cards. And I'm like, dude, it's just a piece of cardboard <laughs> with some stats on the back, you know, <laughs> but in my mind, I saw them as not different, but Culturally, there was a value difference placed on that. Sports were making more money, right? These were people who were, uh, they had skills in a way that was considered to be more socially acceptable, right? And so that matters, just like bronies, right? Or um, uh, any type of, um, if you like something that is considered to be socially either devalued on the mainstream or crossing an identity category, right? So bronies, largely men, you know, but there are women too, but the, you know, you've got men liking uh, an adult adults, men, women who like a show that is geared towards younger kids, right? There's a, there's a quote unquote cultural transgression there. Uh, there is also the, the, the gender binary crossing. Um, and there could be any other number of things that people sort of, violate mainstream views that's going to be devalued that's going to be stigmatized right i mean wrestling is also something that although it makes a lot of money probably still has some amount of stigma to it um there's a group of people called disney adults right who disney is very very popular disney traditional disney films right the animated films mm -hmm. disneyland right there are many adults who have a fond nostalgia for that, who continue to do it. And there are people who are like, why do you like something that's for kids? My view is go to hell. Why, why shouldn't I? Right? <laughs> that, that's why I'm angry. That's my response. Um, but, but I think it is, uh, it is important to recognize that when we like something, we bring that into our self-concept. And so when you hear someone else expressing their fan interests, and they're telling you that they're letting you know something 
something about who they are. Now it's okay to disagree. It's okay to, to say, you know what, that's not my thing. You know, but there's a difference between between saying, that's not my thing, but tell me why you like it, versus that's not my thing and you're stupid because you like it. Right. There, there, there there's a shift there. Um that I think we need to sort of always keep in mind. Yeah, wrestling's really interesting in the sense that um like the number one thing people know about wrestling is that it's fake. Mm-hmm. Like if I say like, oh, I like wrestling, like the number one response people will get, people that couldn't name like a single wrestler, they'll say like, oh, but it's fake, right? Which in a lot of ways is like a really weird, if you boil it down, it's a very weird criticism. Like, yes, the matches <laughs> are predetermined, but like, you know, when Rocky fought Apollo Creed, that was predetermined too. Like mm-hmm. there's plenty of scripted things that people like. It's it, it it's a, but obviously wrestling has this reputation of trying to pretend to be real in a in such a way that it comes across as ridiculous, um. And there's this stigma that's attached to it, and I I think a lot of people are, I don't know if they don't understand why they like wrestling or they're afraid to admit it. A really common thing that's emerged lately is people insisting that. They don't care about rest the matches themselves. They don't care about who wins and who loses. They care about the stories. And they're not here to, 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 to watch matches. They're here for stories. And that's really what is driving wrestling. Stories, not matches, not winning and losing. It's characters and stories. And my interpretation of that has always been an insecurity to admit that you like the predetermined nature of it like by admitting that you actually like the matches you're admitting that you like like the fake outcomes and you Mm. care about who wins and loses as opposed to saying you care about the characters and the stories feels more socially acceptable to admit because it's like saying you care about the characters and stories in any other scripted drama of course my interpretation for me personally is always if you like stories character development and characters going on a journey like wrestling is a terrible medium for that it's really sloppy the stories are very basic compared to almost anything else like if you really just cared about stories you should read a book or watch a tv series like you're gonna see way better acting you're gonna see way more thought out character development like it's 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 really a sloppy medium for that. The reason wrestling is interesting is because you're seeing these characters and stories exist in this weird mock athletic competition where people are trying to prove that they're better than this other person in a test of grappling skill. Like that's the unique charm of pro wrestling is that they're in this mock athletic competition where they're trying to prove superiority through winning this competition. Um, but I've always taken that kind of criticism as people being afraid to admit that they like that element of pro wrestling because of the stigma associated with it. That if they get away from saying, ah, I don't care about the matches and I don't care who wins and loses and things like that, they're setting themselves up to think like I am much what I like is this socially acceptable mainstream popular thing. And I'm not I don't care about this clearly fake thing that has been stigmatized by traditional society. Yeah, so so not being able to speak specifically to those people you're talking about, just sort of generally, I when I hear the sage, well, I'm interested. I don't like. I don't care about this. I care about that. Mm-hmm. I experience that as again an identity statement, right? Now, how much of that is putting on a facade? 
to other people and how much of that is maybe them trying to convince themselves you know uh who knows you know but somewhere in between there i i like the point you make about story and and how it's delivered right so you know i i love comics and uh, particularly superhero comics but but you know comics are unless it's a biopic right <laughs> most comics regardless of genre are fiction i don't really like reading prose fiction very much i'm not sure why um but i love devouring it in comic form so there is something about the expression of those stories right in that medium so it's, it's got to be more than just that i was thinking about as i was reading a batman comic earlier today and uh, appreciating the construction of the page and how you have a story being told with visuals with text and it's not just pictures in this particular comic it was a symmetry of the page like they were they were building a larger gestalt um i dug that not everybody does that's cool um you know but i and this idea of saying you know why can't one just like it because of the uh of the stunts why not right um uh I, I think about it um again taking my my multiple interests here uh i have an interest in the sort of hollywood history and the history of exploitation films right and so exploitation as a term is really as an industry term focuses on what is the sensational content right it could be explosions it could be violence it could be martial arts it could be nudity it could be any number of things but it is something sensational to get people's attention right and so i could say you know what i like action films for the explosions there we go you know or i like these films because of the nudity or because of the gore, if it's horror or whatever. And there are going to be people who are going to sort of turn their nose up at that. So maybe I got to feel like I say, well, sure, yeah, there's the gore. But I really like the way they establish the special effects, right? Or, yes, this is wrestling is exciting because of the fighting. But I really like the way that they intricately create this plot. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you do. Right. But maybe some of it also may be this justification to oneself or to others. And for me, I'm kind of like, well, you know what? Whatever you like, you like. You like the explosions? God bless. Enjoy it. Right. You do you. Um, and just admit that. Um, but I guess that's also an identity tension. Yeah, definitely in wrestling, there's been some, uh, especially in WWE lately, there's been some experimental elements of like and i guess like the undertaker did this too but like there's been some characters that have existed recently that have used like magic mm -hmm. um or horror movie elements and some people have just been over oh, oh my god i love it it's like watching a horror movie it's so great mm -hmm. and i've always been kind of personally i'm confused i'm like well if i wanted to watch a horror movie i would watch a horror movie Mm -hmm. i'm watching a pro wrestling show so i want to see the match conclude by like you know this guy pinning this guy and winning the title not the match conclude by this guy feeding his his opponent to a magical alligator in a mystical swamp which legitimately mm -hmm. happened at the end of a show a couple <laughs> years ago I'm not exaggerating that um mm -hmm. but some people really dug the whole magic you know mystical mystical part of it 
Um, and I always found that kind of fascinating because it's like, why would I, like, I have so much better ways to get this kind of sense of entertainment than this very specific thing. There's nothing else quite like pro wrestling. But if I wanted to see magic and fantasy, there's a million other outlets for that. And that's something that I personally have had a hard time kind mm -hmm. of rectifying with my own fandom. Um, but obviously it, it, it has certainly appealed to other people. So I think um, just once again, me just kind of riffing here, um, I really kind of like this idea of of thinking of one's fan experience. And I, I, I use that broadly because just technically speaking, fandom versus fanship in the literature is conceptually distinct. Fandom is the social aspect and fanship is the connection to the, the product. So I'll, I'm in the interest of being sort of academically accurate, just say the fan experience, right? But the thinking about it as this sort of audio mixer with a variety of different channels, right? And so it's going to look different for different folks. You know, maybe for you, there's a different permutation of those channels than the person who loved the, the magic element that gave them something that they needed that maybe you didn't, right? And, and that's fine. Um, you know, this I, I I've come to appreciate as I've delved back into this literature, right? It it isn't the same thing as a movie, right? Because a movie is very curated. You can take as many takes as you want, right? And you could do that with you know, the the spots between matches, right? Where people are um, pursuing this the the characterization part of the story, right? But the the stunts in a film are going to be different than the stunts in a match because those stunts are live, right? That's like live theater. Something goes south. You got to improv, right? If, if the audience starts to really dig something that a performer is doing, um, you know, those wrestlers got to talk and say, okay, maybe we should do more of this to, to get that audience heat. Right. Am I using that term correctly? Yes. No, you're, you're on board. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I've really come to appreciate as a non-fan, if you will, <laughs> or just a, a watching it, like how intricate that delivery has to be, right? Compared to a movie where it is like, okay, shit, I got this wrong. We'll just do another take. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to wrap things up there. Uh, Eric, are there anything you want to plug uh, to my listeners that people, they can follow you anywhere or anything like that? So... Um, you can find me in different aspects. You can find me at the Illinois State University's psychology department webpage. That's my more traditional um, professional face. Um, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now, uh, at Eric Wesselman. Um, I have a, a film blog uh, where the, the film nerd in me uh, comes out. And as if you Google normal theater film culture, you'll find me there. Uh, and then I have a YouTube page called Digital Golgotha Productions. Um, and that's where I have a lot of vodcasts where I discuss nerdy fandom related things with people. Sometimes if I video uh, con panels, we'll show up there too. All right. Excellent. Well, I want to thank Eric so much for joining the show. I want to thank to all of my listeners. Um, I want to thank everyone who's had such uh, kind words to say about some of our last few episodes. Um, that's, I think we're producing some excellent content here on the show. Uh, and this episode is no exception. So want to thank everyone for that. Um, and I'll talk to you again after a while. Thanks.
Hello there, everybody. It's me, Gary Kidney, the co-host of You've Got to Be Kidding Me on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. And I am Liam Jones, my full name, and I am also a part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network as a co-host for You've Got to Be Kidding Me. We are a TNA history podcast that covers TNA one month at a time. We cover all the drama, all the matches, all the Vince Russo nonsense you could ever want in your life. Have you you heard of TNA? I bet you have. But would it be funnier if two people made jokes over it the whole time? Probably. So if that sounds like fun to you, check it out on this very Voices of Wrestling podcasting network and Liam will do bits and whatnot.